Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are joined by Dr. Adam Zanation to discuss billing, reimbursements, and RVs. Dr. Zanation, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ashley. Dr. Zanation is a professor of otolaryngology and head and neck surgery at an academic center here in the U.S., where his practice largely encompasses anterior skull-based surgery and head and neck oncology. He serves as both the executive vice chair and director for practice development within the Department of Otolaryngology. He joins us today to review the nuances in billing, reimbursements, and RVUs, and how these may play a role into physician salary in certain cases. Dr. Zanation, let's start with some basics. Can you give us a broad overview of the process and key stakeholders involved in reimbursements for medical care? Well, that's a, a fairly broad question to start with. Um, the stakeholders are broad. In, um, overall, in healthcare, the majority of the money filters either through government payers uh, into, into uh, government-run healthcare agencies uh, or commercial payers, which come from your contributions of your employers as well as your employee premiums and, of course, any deductibles that you may be paying. That then goes essentially into a large insurance pot, which has a associated overhead uh, with it. Um, from that pot, then there are insurance-based contracts that go to healthcare systems and even all the way down to individual physicians, uh, at which point um, you're contracted for a certain type of care, a certain level of care, and a certain reimbursement uh, agreement between the insurance agency and the provider or the healthcare system related to that care. Finally, you get to the point where you are actually engaging in healthcare provisions. So as a healthcare provider, you see a patient and um, bill them the appropriate level for the appropriate service that you performed, and then finally get payment. That payment can come through the patient side as a portion of their deductible or cash-based payment, or the payment can come through the insurance side uh, through your contractual obligations with the insurance provider. So depending on which payer or insurer you're discussing, how do the processes that you just described differ? The major processes that differ really occur on the um, network contracting side. The logistics of coding, uh, actual getting the reimbursement, your documentation needs are all really dictated under the rubric um, from CMS and that most commercial providers have basically decided that they're not going to reinvent that wheel, that they're just going to go with whatever rules and or regulations that most of the government uh, payers, essentially CMS, decides upon. However, your level of reimbursement, the amount of, that you, the amount of money that you get back per your unit of service is really what, what varies. Essentially, most government-based uh, contracts, whether they be Medicaid or Medicare, uh, or even TRICARE, which is, a, which is the commercial payer for the military, doesn't really negotiate your individual, your individual fee schedules. But commercial payers will. So the major variance really won't be in the actual day-to-day -day operations or, do or documentation needs but it'll really be with what you actually get paid and what you've negotiated with these commercial payers for your individual service. So today I thought we would talk about uh, 
outpatient care, inpatient care, and procedural billing and RVUs. And since they're all managed differently, we can talk about each separately. We'll start with outpatient first. Can you describe how outpatient clinic visits are coded and billed? There are essentially two methodologies for outpatient coding. And outpatient coding, we're essentially meaning E&M-based coding. So I'm, I'm sort of taking that under the rubric of, of seeing a patient in clinic. Um, you've got time-based coding and then, uh, and then sort of complexity of medical decision-making uh, coding. Time-based coding is pretty straightforward. For any individual return or new or, uh, or consult patient, there is a, a, a time stamp Def, uh, delineated on your level of care, whether you're a level one visit or a level five visit, level one being the easiest visit and level five being the most complex visit. Um, so if you're a level five consult, then the time, minimum time stamp for that visit is 75 minutes. Um, within that 75 minutes, there is a requirement that greater than 50% of that time has to be spent counseling the patient. Um, so it's not examining the patient or gathering history. It's counseling the patient regarding their, their disease process and treatment plan. Um, and then that those times vary. So all the way up to 75 minutes, all the way down to 10 minutes for basically a level two return visit. Um, and, then, and then for documentation, you really only have to document the amount of time and your discussion process with the patient for medical legal reasons. Uh, and that, that 50% of the um, visit was related to counseling. Related to the three-component process where there is a history, a physical exam, and medical decision-making, there's essentially two major guidelines, a 1995 guideline and a 1997 guideline that delineate sort of the levels and needs in, in the individual components of those. Um, and then they then correlate to the same levels one through five of established new and consult level patients. Um, and you have to meet... For returns, two of those three, either history exam or medical decision-making at that level, or for return or for a new or consult patient, you have to meet all three. Are there specific benefits or downsides to each of these um, approaches, whether it's the time-based or the three-component approach? And are there certain situations when using one over another is beneficial? So for the most part, I would say that very few ENT practices practice a significant amount of time-based coding. Um, and for the reason for that is that the majority of our visits are reasonably short. Um, the majority of our visits are, are, reason, are generally focused on a, a very subspecialty specific problem. Um, therefore, you can, you can get to higher level visits without the time commitment um, by meeting appropriate ENT-specific history, ENT-specific exam, and complexity of medical decision-making fairly quickly for higher-level visits um, as opposed to the time-based visits. The downside for the time-based visits is that you do have to put in the time. So if you're talking about a 75-minute consult, you need to be putting in 75 minutes of face-to-face -face time with that patient. The benefit of, of that is that you can just document that single time baseline and essentially you've met billing criteria. You haven't really met medical legal coverage criteria at that point. You know, I can't just say, I saw Mr. Jones for his cancer. I spent 75 minutes with him face to face. Greater than 50% was spent in counseling. Technically, that would meet billing criteria for a time-based visit, but it really wouldn't convey 
the true medical information that is contained, you know, contained within within that patient's visit. Um, and so, advantage of time-based billing is that it's very straightforward. It's very easy to understand. It's not very complex. The downside of time-based billing is that it's very easily auditable because one minute is one minute, and and they and it's very easy to calculate that you couldn't see. 15 level five uh, new consults in a day because there's not enough hours in your clinic day. Do you have any general comments um, for trainees or junior faculty to facilitate appropriate coding of clinic visits? Sure. I think there's a, there's a few things that are, that are pretty straightforward things you can do up front. The first thing is just understand the general basis of the need for components of history, review of systems, your exam, and your medical decision-making. A lot of people like to focus on thinking about this whole medical decision-making side of things. And with what we do in surgery, um, we actually meet these things uh, very quickly. Essentially, you meet a level four medical decision-making criteria if you prescribe a medicine. So if you prescribe Augmentin, if you prescribe Flonase, if you prescribe Zyrtec, just the presence of a prescription given for the disease-specific process meets level four criteria. And any discussion of surgery with specific surgical risk meets level five criteria. Um, so a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to think about how that medical decision-making component uh, works, but that's reasonably a fairly low bar for most of us. Um, I think you spend way, you should, we should spend way more time understanding how the history and physical components of that work um, are related to um, maximizing coding and maximizing our documentation side of things. Um, and then lastly, understanding and putting together appropriate templates so that you can, you can appropriately meet those criteria very easily. So I have level three templates, level four templates, level five templates. And I know that if I essentially, if I fill out and complete those templates, I've met appropriate documentation criteria. What is a little bit interesting is that in 2020, CMS is revamping the ENM coding criteria. Um, the full extent of that is not fully understood um, as of yet, um, but there is discussion that the uh, that the ENM coding criteria and ENM coding reimbursements that it will come from uh, from the level one through five visits um, is likely going to be compacted into number one less levels and number two less need for documentation complexity. So we'll have to keep an eye out for those changes um, in the coming year or so. Um, switching gears a little bit to inpatient care, can you describe the process for billing for inpatient care and the role of diagnosis-related groups, otherwise known as DRGs? Sure. Inpatient care coding is significantly more complex than outpatient care coding. Outpatient care coding, essentially, you've got ENMs, which we've described uh, in our in our previous you know, last few minutes, you got some a, a handful of modifiers that relate to those ENM codes um, that uh, that 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 show that you did procedures or you did multiple procedures and uh, and whatnot. But inpatient coding, uh, you've got um, it's extremely variable and extremely complex um, because it involves both the actual progress note side of things. There's an HMP component side of things. There's the actual procedural or surgical side of things, the post-operative care follow-up side of things. There's ancillary and discharge billing that can occur in the inpatient setting. And for the most part, most inpatient coding 
units are done through inpatient coders that have a substantial amount of knowledge in these areas. Um, and then how they relate to DRGs is DRGs is, is a, basically a grouping of um, diagnoses that CMS has put together to basically allow health systems, not necessarily individual practitioners, but health systems get reimbursement for the complexity of care um, during during surgeries and or complex disease inpatient stays. So if you are a, uh, there again, there's generally five levels of DRGs. Um, level five DRG would be the highest level DRG. Um, so essentially if you're a level five DRG, which would include liver transplants and heart transplants and some of our major cancer operations and skull base operations, the hospital gets a set amount of money for the compendium of care related to that diagnostic related group, related to that DRG, to cover the inpatient side. It doesn't cover my cost as a surgeon related to the individual CPT component of the actual case. So you have to sort of separate out those two things. I bill for my CPT codes related to um, the actual surgical case, and the hospital bills a level four or level five specific DRG to get reimbursed for their inpatient care coverage. Finally, you know, we have covered outpatient and inpatient billing a little bit and without getting into too much detail. Um, you started to mention CPT codes and procedural billing. Can you describe the process for how um, one would go about billing for a surgical procedure? Of course. So anytime you do a surgical procedure, there's there's two components of the surgical procedure. There's the indications for the procedure, and then there's the actual procedure that you perform yourself. Um, ideally, those two things should match up. You know, we shouldn't be performing surgical procedures that don't have direct indications. Um, but once we jump that hurdle, then essentially uh, there are a grouping of CPT codes. There's um, uh, almost, you know, they go up to 100,000. Um, as far as a number goes, uh, CPT codes that are grouped by disease states, whether they be related to respiratory systems or whether they related to neurosystems. Um, and for each individual procedure that you perform, there's a CPT code that says you performed that procedure. So if you do a sinus surgery, then you've got a CPT code for a sphenoethmoidectomy and a CPT code for a maxillary antrostomy with tissue removal and a CPT code for a frontal sinusotomy and a CPT code for image guidance. Each one of those CPT codes is billed as a separate surgical procedure. And most of our, most of our surgical procedures have individual CPT codes that are, um, that are related to them. And most surgical procedures do include more than one CPT code. What resources are there um, available for our listeners who want to learn a little bit more about CPT codes and to ensure that they're using the appropriate CPT codes during their surgical billing? So the first thing is uh, during your training to pay attention to to what your uh, attendings and mentors are doing. Um, That's uh, step one. because essentially most people um, are thinking about this within their sub- subspecialty uh, areas uh, at, at a pretty high level. The second thing I have all my uh, fellows do is that in every OR, we have a, a 2020 CPT coding guidelines. Um, in, in, in that coding guidelines, there's all, you know, zero to 99,999 um, numbers. Um, and there's a description of that code. So if they do a ZMC fracture, 
then they can look up the coding for a ZMC fracture. When they look up the coding for a ZMC fracture, lo and behold, they realize is that there's four different codes for a ZMC fracture. There's a ZMC fracture with simple repair. There's a ZMC fracture with simple ORIF. There's a comminuted complex, a ZMC fracture. And then there's a ZMC fracture requiring multiple surgical approaches and intermaxillary fixation. And, and you get a description related to that uh, in the CPT coding guideline book. Um, and so what I tell my fellows to do is to look at those things and, and find the one that most closely fits. So every one of those CPT codes that has an individual number and an individual line item description actually has a one to two page clinical vignette that describes the intricacy and the specificness of that CPT code as it relates to a different one. Now, we work in a field with constant innovation, um, with new approaches being developed and new technology coming out, resulting in essentially new procedures. How is a new CPT code developed? How long does it take? Is there a lag between when we start doing specific surgeries and when we can actually properly um, attach a CPT code to that? So I think there's a significant lag in the innovation that occurs within most of our fields and the CPT coding and CPT evaluation process. So how that process generally works is that within our subspecialty societies, there's leadership that, that, that gets um, input from their membership and their membership says, I'm just going to use a draft three frontal sinusotomy, for example. Everybody knows what a draft three frontal sinusotomy is. Uh, it's very significant and different than a standard frontal sinusotomy. Um, but the membership might say, oh, well, we're doing more draft three frontal sinusotomies, but we don't have a specific code related to that drill out process. So they go and they tell the ARS or the academy or both, hey, we really need to think about this as a specific CPT code. The subspecialty societies then evaluate that and then kick that to the academy society. And then the academy then meets on it. And the academy takes that to the um, RUC, or it's called the Relative Value Scale Update Committee, and that's a uh, AMA committee. And then the RUC then hears that and decides that it is either time or not time to evaluate that code. Um, if they make a determination that it's time to evaluate that code, then it goes through an additional process where there's a survey component and a survey process component, as well as evaluation process component. Um, that goes out to the members of the subspecialty organizations or the academy. And then, then they get that information back from the survey. And then they send all that to CMS. And then finally, CMS then meets and determines whether a new CPT code will be fully added. And more interestingly, whether it will be fully valued and what the value will be. Um, and so that process is a multi-year process. So you can imagine that as novel OR procedures are performed, um, they don't have immediate CPT codes. And so there ends up having to be um, either umbrellaed where you, where you bill under an existing CPT code or you bill under an unlisted CPT code and then uh, have to go through the pre-approval and post-approval processes that, uh, to get reimbursed for those unlisted codes. I see. So now that we've covered outpatient inpatient and procedural billing a little bit to give us some background. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and ask some broader questions about how this all plays um, a role in practical day-to-day um, -day 
clinician's life. So first, how does billing differ for the clinician, whether they're in an academic setting or in a private practice setting? There's really not that much difference in an academic or private practice setting as far as how billing goes. Um, The documentation needs are the same. The uh, RVUs are the same between the both uh, practices. The reimbursement or the money coming back to the receipts uh, into the departments are the same. The biggest difference is that in an academic institution, for the most part, our insurance contracts are negotiated on a system level and not on an individual practice level, whereas in a fair number of uh, private practices, uh, they'll, the commercial carrier contracts will be negotiated on ENT-specific private practice specific variables. So so there's a little bit of an extra step that our private practice uh, physicians have to go through that our academic physicians don't have to go through. So what happens if a physician bills for an encounter, let's say an outpatient encounter, and the insurer, the payer denies that claim and doesn't reimburse for it? What is the most common situation that leads to that happening? And how often does that actually happen? So for for ENM based coding that it does it's not exceedingly common. I mean it's it's significantly less than ten percent of of ENM coding gets any sort of initial rejection phase of things. Um, uh, that's primarily because the ENM side of things is very common. Um, it's uh, you know it, it, did the patient show up? Did you see the patient? Um, the uh, the hurdles to actually show that it happened is are fairly low, um, and so the rejection rate is not that significant. Um, the most common reason for rejections is there are some commercial carriers that do require pre-authorizations of subspecialty ENMs. Uh, Tricare would be one of those, and there's also um, uh, some uh, ENM codes that you also then perform a procedure on. So you might perform a sinonasal endoscopy or a flexible fiber optic laryngoscopy or even a flexible fiber laryngoscopy with biopsy at the time of that procedure. Sometimes those require pre-authorizations and, and those pre-authorizations uh, are usually the things that lead to denials. There generally are appeals processes and most of the time the appeals processes are successful um, and uh, uh, the, the coding side of the business environment sort of takes care of most of those usually the physician doesn't have to handle appeals related to ENM based coding. That's a little different than the surgical appeals, which the physician sometimes does have to become involved in. What are some of the most common errors in billing that negatively impact reimbursements? So one of the most common errors that, that I see many of our junior practitioners make is that they have a tendency to undercode. Um, the general thought is, is that if I bill at a lower visit, then I, I place myself at less audit risk and less medical legal risk. And that's just not true. Um, Your audit risk and your medical legal risk uh, for your care is exactly the same um, because that's really based on the disease process and really your intervention. Um, So there can be significant swings. I mean, going from a level three visit to a level four visits is about 34% difference in receipts. Um, And going from a level three visit to a level five new visit is almost a 60% increase in receipts. So if you're already seeing the patient for the appropriate disease process and you're seeing and you're already doing the documentation at the level of a level four or level five visit, then billing for a level two or a level three visit is the most common reason to leave revenue on the table. So what are some of the actions that physicians can take to capture the appropriate but potentially optimized amount of reimbursements for each encounter? So the biggest thing is to is to 
number one, understand your coding. Um, understand um, um, that uh, that when you when you see a complex patient, to bill an appropriately you know appropriate level of of uh, ENM visit. Then the next step is I really think understanding really how your modifiers really work. I think especially in ENT practices, approximately thirty to forty percent of the of the patients are going to get a procedure along with their ENM. So they're going to get a level three visit or a level four visit or whatever level visit is. And, and they're also concomitantly going to get a procedure, whether that procedure be a scope or whether that procedure be having their ears cleaned or having PE tubes placed. Um, uh, that's pretty commonplace in the otolaryngology practice and, and results in probably close to 40 or 50% of the actual in-clinic revenue generation. So understanding how your modifiers relate to your E&M so that your insurance companies will appropriately pay for the scopes is very important or pay for any of the procedures is very important. And then also having a good process that if you do require pre-authorizations for those in-office procedures, that you've got an ability to understand which patients need that and resources in your clinic, whether they be CMAs or CSTs, to go ahead and get that done so that you get appropriate point of service uh, authorizations. Now, you previously mentioned um, the role of medical coders um, that who can ensure appropriate billing and coding. Um, do all practices have medical coders and are they more commonly responsible for reviewing outpatient or inpatient encounters? I think at this point uh, in the world of medicine, I would say the vast, vast majority of practices have um, access to medical coders, whether they employ them themselves or whether they're a subcontracting entity. I think that uh, the majority of practices have access to medical coders. I'd say if you look then at the differences between inpatient coding and outpatient coding, 90 plus percent of inpatient coding has direct connection to inpatient coders. Whereas in the outpatient side, you've got a significantly less uh, high percentage, probably less than 10 or 20 percent that, that of, of each individual encounter is uh, is touched or connected to an individual coder. In the outpatient setting, the coder will most likely be doing education and audits of your actual individual practice as instead of actually looking at each individual case or patient uh, visit. Now, as we all know, especially during this pandemic, um, telehealth has been gaining quite a bit of traction um, in recent years, and then that's been accelerated in 2020. How has billing for telehealth appointments been managed currently, and how will that change in the future? So prior to the pandemic, there were a handful of uh, commercial carriers that would pay for uh, in-network telehealth visits. Those were usually part of sort of value-based uh, healthcare contracts that went to fairly large systems. Once the pandemic hit, um, one of the responses by CMS was uh, to institute a very rapid protocol to allow for billing of telehealth visits. And there is actually a telehealth e and uh, 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 you know, coding schema that, uh, that exists uh, that, that CMS sort of rapidly uh, pushed through. And, and then state by state, the individual state commercial carriers decided whether they were going to pick up uh, on that same CMS um, uh, telehealth coding 
uh, change. And the vast majority uh, were fairly responsive to it. Interestingly, when the, when it first happened in the, their first levels of responses, they were essentially reimbursing at approximately 40 or 50 percent of the of the of the same level of ENM coding. Um, and then slowly but surely, you know, as the pandemic lingered, the many of the insurance companies actually then ended up uh, agreeing to reimburse at the same RVU levels as uh, in-person ENMs. Um, so, so that's been, you know, maybe if, if there's one positive that's come out of this pandemic, that's potentially one of them is that, is that we have fast tracked the sort of the feasibility as well as the, the uh, revenue generation for telehealth visits uh, going forward. Yeah, and I hope some of the progress that we have made um, endures the end of the pandemic as well, and we can continue to build upon that for telehealth appointments. Um, let's transition to relative value units, otherwise known as RVUs, which you've previously mentioned. Can you review what RVUs are specifically and what role they play in reimbursements for patient care? Yes. So a relative value unit is exactly what it says it is. Um, it's a it's a unit of work that exists within healthcare or physician work specifically that delineates the amount of work, effort, and time that goes into an individual medical intervention. So ideally, if something has a RVU value of one, which is approximately a level three return visit, by the way, then if something has a RVU value of four, then ideally it should take four times the amount of time and physician resource allocation. Um, very clearly, you can very quickly see that, uh, that, that sometimes that may be true and sometimes it might not be true, um, but that's the general premise. The RVU is made up of three components. It's made up of the work RVU component, which is the component of the total RVU that's related to physician work. It's related to the practice expense work RVU component, which is the RVU component that's related to overall overhead of the practice. And then there is a medical liability RVU component, which relates to um, how much liability is within an individual um, medical environment. Uh, in general, the work RVU component is about 45% of the total RVU. The PERVU component is about 45% of the total RVU. And the liability component is about 10%. Very clearly, there's some variation in those numbers, but that's a general overview. And then all of those are then geographically adjusted um, related to their payment levels, depending on whether you live in the Northeast or Southeast or West or whatnot. So is there an absolute uh, dollar value assigned to one RVU uh, as far as Medicare reimbursements go? And if so, how is that rate determined? How often is it adjusted to account for things like inflation? So that's a great question. Um, CMS does have a RVU conversion factor, and they do update it uh, annually. Um, in 2020, the uh, CMS or uh, Medicare RVU conversion factor is $36.09. Um, that is updated annually, and it's basically updated on a sort of a, the idea of this sort of zero-sum basis, um, where CMS basically takes the compendium of medical care, they look at changes that they've made within the RVU system, they look at um, how many, what those changes might, how those changes might impact sort of the 
um, physician-based reimbursement. And then they basically divide the total budget line or amount of money that they sort of have thought is in the system with the potential total number of RVUs. Um, and then they get a conversion factor. Um, so that conversion factor is uh, is somewhat is somewhat variable, although in general has lived between uh, thirty six and thirty seven dollars for the last few years. And we come back to the same uh, issue that we previously discussed with CPTs in that we work in a field with constant technological innovation and changes in practice and advances in patient care. How does a relatively stagnant system of RVUs, which I believe is updated about every five years, impact billing for a new procedure that's potentially misvalued or undervalued in terms of RVUs? Well, it goes through the same individual process that we talked about before, where there's that sort of multi-step process of defining the CPT code. And then the last part of the process is the valuation of the CPT code. And then approximately every five to 10 years, there is a revaluation of the existing CPT codes, which is which is an, an analogous process. And it's also done through this sort of budget neutral or zero sum process. Um, and uh, where they basically look at at practice patterns, they look at um, they look at the number of procedures that are done um, in the last two to three years. They try to do trend lines to understand how many more procedures, whether procedures are increasing in frequency or decreasing in frequency. Then they basically apply that back to sort of this net budget neutrality um, philosophy, um, and then and then revalue things. Um, in general, the revaluation process can have some impact on um, on whether something is misvalued or not, but that generally doesn't occur through a trend line process. Um, and one of the most uh, famous examples in ENT for this is uh, is back when I was looking at fellowships. Um, head and neck surgery had uh, had uh, basically just taken some fairly large hits with uh, several RTOG studies that basically showed that uh, chemoradiation was going to be the future of head and neck surgical, uh, head and neck uh, cancer care. Um, now we know, you know, 15 years later, that's not exactly true. Um, but that was, exa- that was the worry in the, late, in the late 90s when the RTOG studies were coming out related to chemoradiation therapy. What was also also very clearly changing at that time is that the majority of our surgeries were becoming salvage in nature, and the and the CPT evaluations for those head and neck codes were were not for salvage surgery. And we know that salvage surgery has a, a logarithmically higher healing rate, complication rate. Um, the surgeries take longer; they're more complex. Um, but we were using the same old CPT codes for when we were doing primary non-chemoradiated neck dissections um, in the 80s to, to now in the late 90s and early 2000s, where the majority of our neck dissections and, and, and laryngectomies were in the salvage setting. Um, so the Head Neck Society actually went in at the time of the reevaluation process and presented all this data, presented the complication data, the time data, the complexity data, and the majority of the Head Neck uh, CPT codes were, were upvalued by about 40%. And uh, so it was a big success story of, uh, of using our societal connections and societal leadership, um, as well as you know, making a story behind healthcare change for appropriate valuation. Switching gears again a little bit to discuss compensation. Um, a lot of compensation plans differ greatly uh, just across practices and specialties. Um, 
but they can be based on productivity solely or a combination of productivity um, driven by a bonus, let's say, with a base salary. Since measuring productivity is not very straightforward, can you generally describe the advantages and disadvantages of models that use RVUs as opposed to those that use collections or receipts in determining a level of productivity uh, as a means to determine a physician's salary? It's a uh, it's a really really complicated question. What we do know is that if if we make the the very um, significant jump that the relative value unit is appropriate is an appropriate measure of physician work. So so let's just make that as a baseline assumption. We can we can argue for an hour whether that's true or not. Um, but let's just say that that the relative value unit between an otologist and a head and neck surgeon and a laryngologist and a peds an ENT surgeon and a family medicine doctor is appropriately scaled. Okay. So if we make that assumption, then what we can then do is look at our national databases. And we've got basically three major national databases um, that look at subspecialty productivity. Uh, so they'll basically say, the, oh, the average ENT doctor in the country who's doing academics or not doing academics um, has a median productivity value of 7,800. It sort of ranges between 7,500 and 8,000, depending on which of the three scales you want to look at. So that basically says that, that, the, that the median for an otolaryngologist is roughly 75 or 7,800 um, work RVUs. And, um, and what that translates to into revenue is, is, is significantly more variable. Um, and I'm going to give you some examples of that. Um, revenue is primarily defined by another factor, which and the ma major factor there is payer mix. Um, so if you are a pediatric otolaryngologist and you're taking care of a significant number of um, uh, immigrant children, then your payer mix might be very low for the amount of work that you're that you're doing. Um, so you might be doing those same 7,500 work RVUs, but be getting a significantly lower receipts model, uh, receipts and in revenue into your practice than if you are, you know, if you were practicing pediatric otolaryngology in some affluent community. So if you really think about, you know, the appropriateness of that, um, I think there's a balance. And part of the RVU-based models for productivity um, try to balance that. Um, so they basically try to say, well, payer mix is obviously significantly um, biased. You know, if I'm your senior partner, um, uh, Ashley, then you say, hey, Adam, you know, my, my, my payer mix isn't that great. We're doing the same amount of work, but you're making twice as much money as me. Well, as your senior partner, you know, I, I wouldn't do this to you, Ashley, but, you know, you know, I, you'd be like, hey, Adam, you know, you're seeing all the managed care patients and I'm seeing all the patients with no insurance and we're doing the same amount of work, but your receipts are much higher than me. Um, so the idea of the RVU-based compensation systems in some ways is, is to mitigate that difference in payer mix. Um, probably the, the, you know, the, the real world example, the real world of it is that there has to be some sort of melding of those two things because in order to have a successful financial practice, you need people who are productive and you need an appropriate payer mix. Um, and so, so, so having some level of control of both of those things is, uh, is probably the, the most the most connected and, and common compensation plan in some ways. Well, we've gone over quite a few topics, all of which are very complex. Um, so thank you for that. 
for our listeners who are interested in delving a little bit more in depth um, in regards to any of the things that we've discussed today, are there any resources that you would recommend um, for them uh, if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, so there's a there's there's a few. Um, the our academy, uh, the AAO Headnex uh, Society, has a uh, AAO. Uh, coding corner uh, that's got uh, really some really nice resources if you're an academy member. Um, next, there's uh, generally several subspecialty societies that have coding resources, um, and then uh, Karen Zepko is uh, is sort of uh, considered the um, ENT coding expert uh, of the of the current time period. On her website, she's got some interesting coding resources related specifically to ENT. And and I don't generally recommend textbooks for this because the um, the sort of the milieu of of coding specifics changes so rapidly. Um, but uh, but Abton Taby uh, does have a great book on uh, practice management that has some coding aspects of it too. Also, I think it was published in 2016 2017. So the the coding aspects uh, you know might be changed a little bit, but the the general thought processes for how to think through these things haven't changed in in that time frame. Well, Dr. Zanation, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? So I think the the, the major pieces of advice that I've got for your listeners are, uh, is, you know, don't let the revenue generation and the coding aspects drive your medical care. I mean, I think that that's, that's, a, that's something when you really start to first think about these things, you start to think about, oh, well, I, I need... I, I need to make all these check boxes and I need to get to these points so that I can build a, a, this level of visit or, or use a, this particular CPT code versus that CPT code. Um, what, I, what, I, what I tell people is that educating yourself in this area, what it does is it allows you to actually maximize your reimbursement for the things that are medically necessary. So see the patient, treat the patient in the appropriate way, document what you did to the patient in the appropriate way, and then maximize your billing off of those needs, as opposed to thinking about sort of the, 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 the billing side and the documentation side at the beginning of that process. Um, so, uh, so that would be my, my major thing is to said, take care of the patients the way they need to be taken care of. But then after that, do think about how to appropriately code and document and maximize your, your, your revenue, because essentially your personal, your personal, benefit and your practice benefit will really come off the backs of that. Thank you, Dr. Zanish. I think that's a wonderful reminder, um, as always, to think of the patient first, and that's why we're here. Um, well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>